Rod Oram, business commentator. Good morning. Good morning. The Trans-Pacific Partnership trade talks back under discussion and a lot of talk about negotiating tactics and just where things are at. Why back in the news now? The most recent round of talks uh, concluded yesterday in Salt Lake City, Utah, in the US, and it's clear there was very little progress made, particularly on the contentious issues. And so I became very interested in a piece of research I found last week, and it's, I just love this kind of research. Sorry, can I just go off on a little thing about research? <laughs> Why not? I, I feel that so often we just go round and round in circles on the same old issues with people saying the same thing every time, and and, and we don't get anywhere. It's like a an incredibly boring game of baseball um, and um, I'm always interested in research that sort of um, shows new light and in a helpful way and this is what this does. So this is a, a very useful piece of research which um, shows how surprisingly uh, isolated the US is in these negotiations and there's a surprising lack of solidarity between some countries you'd expect to be closely aligned and very interestingly New Zealand and Australia don't turn up as closely as aligned uh, as we might think and um, that's the sort of conclusions which has come out of this work from a researcher at George Washington University in DC uh, published in the Washington Post last week. Interesting, especially though in the area of trade, because we sort of knew that in some ways. There was all that debate around the time the US, uh, Australia got its free trade deal. And straight away you were noticing the differences between what would have worked for Australia and what would have worked for New Zealand, particularly the absence of agriculture. Um, indeed. And um, that's where this analysis by Gabriel Michael, the researcher at uh, George Washington University, um, really starts to um, reveal those fault lines. So he did, in essence, what is very simple. Um, he took the draft leaked text of the whole document and looked not at what had been agreed, but all the items which were still outstanding. And he looked at the proposals on those items from various countries and uh, who, which countries were flagging up sticking points. And apparently this is a, a thing you can do. that You map dyads, apparently it's called, pairs of country names, to identify where that support and where that opposition lies. And some very interesting stuff turns up. The most frequent pairing of alignment is with Chile and Singapore. But for example, Australia and New Zealand as a pairing only rank 16th in the ranking of all, of all 66 possible um, dyads. And I was rather surprised by that in that there isn't more alignment with Australia, uh, given that we share a lot in common economically and of course we um, are trying to achieve a, a, a seamless to use the phrase trans-Tasman market but of course the real shock is the US so of those 66 possible pairings the US doesn't turn up until you get down to 42nd out of 66 in other words that shows how isolated it is um, and then this is the number of items on which two countries have agreed. No, no, it, it uh, yes, it is. That, mm. Sorry, that, or, or no, no, it can work. Uh, sorry, it's not the I'm, number I'm, of items. It indicates no. the number of times on which two countries have agreed, or what? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's um, matching those country pairs on both on who is proposing, um, but who is aligning with who on sticking points. Is that terribly surprising when you think the US in some ways might see itself as this big player with the ability to hold out to the last minute, all these kinds of things? Um, no, in one sense, but it can't do this negotiation alone. So it's either going to have to either move its position um, or be very persuasive um, or... Um, 
something else. I'm sure I'm not sure. Because you'd, you'd imagine a lot off. of other countries with similar ambitions might be strategically lining up and trying to group and, and agree early on. Yeah, but the, the, the strongest grouping, if you look beyond the dyads, is actually four countries um, with the closest alignment in negotiating position, and that's New Zealand, Singapore, Chile, and Malaysia. And to be uh, blunt, um, whilst we are four countries of interest in Singapore, the most powerful economically of those four, and that's not a strong alignment to um, stand up to the states. And then when you look at um, where New Zealand um, uh, ranks in those pairings, um, the U.S. is, we are in fact the U.S.'s closest ally, remarkably, um, uh, when you look at the U.S.-New Zealand pairing, but that's only ranked 49th. And even more surprising is U.S. and Canada, who have a long um, history of the North American Free Trade Agreement, um, uh, they, uh, th their alignment is only 54th. So that gives you a, a measure of, sort of how isolated the U.S. is on this, on... Uh, on the real big sticking points. What does it mean then for, what are the big real sticking points? Well, the analysis is only um, assessing where support lies. It then doesn't dive down into um, that next level about those um, big issues that are the sticking points. But we know from other reports, they are the ones, the big three are on intellectual property, mm. pharmaceuticals, mm. which in a sense is a subset of intellectual property, um, and foreign investor rights to sue host governments. Right. And um, but given the complexity of those issues um, and this analysis showing us how isolated the U.S. is, that I would suggest this is one. Well, indeed, this is the conclusion of the researchers as well. The U.S. Um, is really going to struggle um, to um, get its way. Well, either that or they may all struggle to conclude a deal. God knows on the unilateral, uh, sorry, on the multilateral front, front, we've seen how these deals can just disappear into the never-never. Yeah, and unfortunately, from the US's point of view, or at least from the um, President Obama's point of view, um, he's got a weak hand because um, the c Congress um, won't give him uh, trade promotion authority, which is the right to fast-track an agreement through Congress without any um, change being made, and it's just a straight vote up or down. Um, and so if you add all that together, um, I've always thought the negotiating timetable was extremely ambit, well, uh, unworldly, given the complexity of the issues. Um, but I'm beginning to wonder if a deal at all is ever going to be done. And so perhaps a little early to come to that conclusion. But um, certainly that's the sort of thought that starts to arise from this kind of analysis. What does it mean for negotiations if that is the case, that the US is one of the least... What's the word? Uh, least likely countries to have reached agreement with other countries on the on the specifics. Um, I'm a, uh, a strong supporter of uh, freer and easier but fair trade, um, and that won't have. So this agreement won't meet my definitions of that um, unless there's major concessions by the U.S. on intellectual property and um, the other sticking points. But I think it's also important um, to offer a counter view, um, given the hype around how important it is we do TPP, uh, which is to actually remind ourselves of the economic impact of TPP. Now, here I'm referring back to um, uh, an academic paper reported at the meeting, the annual meeting of the NZ US Council in May of last year, and it showed that if TPP were implemented, implemented by 2015, 
which clearly won't happen, even if negotiations are wrapped up at the end of this year, that this analysis is based on negotiations being complete at the end of 2012, um, it would lift exports uh, from New Zealand by 5.7 percent by 2025, um, and that would give a, a 0.83 percent lift in GDP. But which is useful, but I think there's a real caution in that if you look more deeply at this analysis, because of those gains, 96% would come from an increase in our food and beverage exports. Um, and the analysis shows that that would cause a shift of resources to the primary sector at the expense of other sectors. Uh, now, this is my analysis now coming in, not theirs. If that was the case, um, for example, on adverse intellectual property, that would certainly um, be uh, very detrimental to the software and creative industries um, in New Zealand. And anything on pharmaceuticals would be, um, and indeed intellectual property applies here too, would also be negative to uh, drug research and um, manufacturing here. Um, local pharmaceutical companies like Douglas Pharmaceuticals have been very articulate about that. And I think it would probably chill uh, clinical trials as well. So um, a TPP would look as though it would um, boost the primary sector, but um, at the expense of other sectors. Your problem is always with trade agreements, you can do your analysis on what is in it for you, and as you say, that may vary from sector to sector in the economy. Your problem is, what if you're not in it? What is the cost to you? Um, well, this is where I'm going to... I've been sitting on this wonderful research since May, just waiting for a moment to talk about it, and here it comes. <laughs> um, Trade agreements are important, but it's really important not to um, think they are the be-all and end-all of international trade. And this is the second piece of research in that theme of shedding new light on things. There's been a lot of um, work by a number of um, academic researchers in groups, different groups, different parts, not coordinated in any way, um, around the world looking at the effect of containerization on shipping and how important that's been. And The Economist magazine had an incredibly interesting piece in, in mid-May summarizing the main themes for this strand of work that's been going on. Brief recap, um, containers are invented by um, an American trucking magnate by the name of Malcolm McLean, um, and he realized that it was there was a great opportunity to radically reduce um, the handling of cargoes and thus um, increase shipping efficiency and reducing shipping costs. So before containers, um, it was all um, um, break bulk or loose cargo um, on a standard ship, so a huge amount of cargo handling. So the very first test um, he did with a, a ship run um, in the US um, using a crude container um, was quite extraordinary. The, the cost of handling that container was 16 cents a tonne. This is back in 1956 dollars. Whereas the cost of the traditional um, uh, loose cargo on a loose on a standard ship was five dollars and eighty three cents a ton. So that's how dramatic it was. It took a while to standardize containers and the ships, but once that happened, um, containerization took off like wildfire. And in 1966, containerization uh, was responsible for only one percent of um, overseas trade volumes around the world, but by 1983 it was nearly 90 percent, and w with a remarkable impact on. Um, stimulating the volume of trade that then happened. 
Okay, so the what's the what's the, oh, the punchline? Yeah. <laughs> well, the punchline is this. Um, another part of the research is if you look at um, twenty-two industrialized countries and assessed how much membership of a multilateral trade organization, first GATT, and then its successor, the World Trade Organization, and on average, uh, those trade f- free trade agreements um, lifted. Um, trade for those countries um, by um, 285% over, I think, a 20-year period, and and bilateral free trade agreements by much less, around about uh, 45%. But it was the containers which were totally extraordinary. Um, They lifted trade by 320% over five years and 790% over 20 years. And so the clear example of this research is that Um, Yes, free trade helps, it's useful, but actually the bigger driver of international trade has been containerization, not free trade. There you go. Uh, Anyway, we'll see. What's the? I mean, I I take your point. I'm not sure that it answered my question of what happens to you, though, if you're not in trade deals that other people are in, especially, uh, you know, a nine-way Pacific Uh, one. um, uh, China's not in TPP. Um, The U.S. would hope to get China in on its terms. Obviously, China has a different it's view got of that. Quite a big um, internal and, economy um, too, isn't it? TPP theoretically is a stepping stone to the holy grail that APEC across Asia Pacific has wrestled with for mm. a decade and failed to do, which is free trade across APEC. Um, so, um, if TPP doesn't work, there will still be plenty of opportunities out there, um, and there will be other groupings. I mean, the Chinese are running a sixteen-nation regional um, economic cooperation negotiation to as a counterbalance to TPP. So all sorts of other stuff will happen. Mm. You know, this is hardly the end of the world. But but I will say there's one thing, though, which would be sad about TPP failing. Amongst all the good things in TPP um, um, are a lot of work on improving trade facilitation, such as custom procedures. And again, it's the same strand of another strand of this work reported in The Economist in May, that um, if those um, border procedures were improved by 50%, I'm not sure how you measure that, presumably it's custom delays and that kind of stuff, that would um, have the same economic impact as eliminating the remaining tariffs in the world. So that's why this stuff's really important. Um, and, and it's not contentious compared with intellectual property. Um, and that's why I'm, I, my concern is that TPP gets down, bogged down, and mm. perhaps ultimately fails on things that w- sweep away at the same time a whole bunch of useful things. In New Zealand, obviously, the controversy surrounding that was that the price went down. The government says, well, we got maximum uh, price, didn't we? And we didn't hock it off cheap to our mates, as we keep being accused of doing. But what is the, what is the consequence of the shares? Well, um, it, well, the share price is substantially below the dollar sixty-five at which people bought them. It was extremely unusual. Um, in fact, um, historians could put me right on this, but I can't remember an, a case where um, a, an on-market offer of a very large chunk of stock was not at a discount. And indeed, this was the case. So, dollar sixty-five was the last trade before the orders were taken, and um, and so. I suppose it's no surprise that the shares have fallen since. And um, 
what was seemed to be going on is that once it not seemed to be going on, there's good evidence of this once again and this is th three times running with these three sales um the government's ad in in investment bank advisors have seriously overestimated investor demand and at the same time the government was too eager to get the best price it could um and so it's created these sorts of um aftermarket overhangs and um it's um really soured the market i mean people are already talking about you know brokers analysts strategists are all talking about well you know those soes they were all defensive stocks you know nice dividend yields that's yesterday's story now we're looking for growth stocks and and so um well in fact the government has said that um this pretty much concludes the asset sales um solid energy is not fit for sale and um genesis would be a very very big ask so um it's all left a bit of a sour note i'd have to say indeed and just briefly on water the uh, a lot of reports coming out presently on water the most recent was the parliamentary commission for the environment's report which focused on the science really and on these two uh, it was the nitrate and what was the other one? Um, oh gosh, was it the phosphorus? phosphorus. Yeah, yeah. It, it, just really mapping what land use change, what effect that has had on the waterways with uh, with these um, getting into the waterways in greater quantities. It was a superb report, um, and uh, I'll dive right into the heart of the issue. Um, uh, Jan Wright was making it very clear that um, a far intensifying of farming is putting ever-escalating pressure on water. But here, to me, is the real nub of it. Um, all that's dead right. But the basic message from government, Fonterra, Federated Farmers and Business New Zealand, was, and my words paraphrasing, don't worry, we care about water too, I and mean, we're working on fixing the problems. Yes, the government is, with its very difficult, long-running work on freshwater policy, um, but it's seems to me very clear from other evidence that um, the government and um, the farming sector are working on economic modelling, which is they're going to present to show what the trade-off is. So in other words, um, if we let um, water quality go to this point, this will be the economic benefits we get. And I think that's just going to be one heck of a, a fight when that surfaces next year. And, and so... The Parliamentary Commission's report is very, very valuable, um, but this attitude of all the interested parties, don't worry, we're taking care of it. You know, the... Um, well, it uh, will focus the debate, won't it, that modelling? Uh, yes, it will. And um, I, I look forward to that very much indeed, um, because it's not, in my mind, that's the wrong argument to have to say that there is a trade-off between that environmental quality um, and the economic benefit. I, I have always argued, um, and I would go to the wall on this, um, is that um, the greater economic benefit lies in farming um, or in doing anything we do within that in, uh, in that in with high environmental standards. To me, it's not a trade-off. All the value is on mm. the, is on the upside. But we're already there because everything we've done in our economy has had a consequence for the environment. So this is just focusing in this particular area, what the consequences are going to be for both economic and for environmental perspectives uh, if the increases continue. But it's still not looking at this the right way around. It's not looking like if we did right by the environment, I mean really right by mm. the environment, what's the economic well, upside? I don't know. You might, you might have to say we're getting rid of a whole lot of dairy farming. <laughs> you know? No. Um, I, I would say it's all about much better dairy farming. Sorry, with due respect to dairy farmers, they most of them do a very good job. But it's actually trying to 
actually get the value of that in the market, which we don't do. And so to me, that's the big issue. We leave lots of value on the table and other people collect it. So that's the issue. Um, and so this trade-off between the economy and the environment is, is completely the wrong way of looking at this. Thank you, Rod Orr and Business Commentator.